0: father thank you for your church thank you for the gathered church here and at chapel and venue and and the cactus and God just thank you for Scottsdale Bible and for what you're doing in our lives I pray that as we open up your book now tell a few stories as Jesus did so often and try to go deeper in our understanding of what church is to be that God by the power of your spirit that you'd give us ears to hear and eyes to see that which you have revealed to us and I pray this in Jesus name and we all say together amen Amen. so as you can tell i want to do something relatively simple today but i believe also very powerful especially when it comes to our understanding and experience of church in the 21st century and what i want to do today is share with you three stories three tales if you will about three very different kinds of churches And I'll let you know right up front, this is going to be kind of raw for some of us because these are very real churches, they exist in time and space, and they are really acting as three options that we all have as to what kind of church we want our church to be, three options that as you listen closely are indicative of the kinds of churches in America that one could attend And to introduce the first church to you, I'm going to read you the story, our first story, out of Philip Yancey's groundbreaking book. It came out about a decade and a half ago called Church, Why Bother?, And it was a great book, very small book, because it was Yancey's exposition on what church is like in America, what's wrong with it, what's right with it, and his experience of church growing up. And I'm going to read you his story to introduce our first church to you. Some of you will resonate with this greatly. He says, as I grew up in Georgia, church defined my life. I faithfully attended services every Sunday morning and evening, and also on Wednesday nights, not to mention vacation Bible school, youth group activities, revivals, missions conferences, and any other occasions that the door might be open. I looked at the world through stained glass lenses. The church told me what to believe, who to trust or distrust, and how to behave. He goes on to say, my ventures into the outside world, especially in public high school, brought some awkward moments. I remember the hot shame of standing before a high school speech class giving the pious reasons why I could not accompany them to view a Hollywood version of Othello. My church frowned on such activities as roller skating, it was too much like dancing, bowling because some alleys serve liquor, going to movies, and even reading the Sunday newspaper— the church erected a thick wall of external rules to protect us from the sinful world outside. He goes on to say that all these rules are not necessarily bad. He says strict legalism pulls in the boundaries of deviance. For example, we might sneak off to a bowling alley, but we would never think of touching liquor or drugs. As he continues to describe his church experience, he says, Later, though, I came to realize that some of the rules were wholly arbitrary and some even flat out wrong. In the Deep South, racism was an integral part of the church subculture. I regularly heard from the pulpit that blacks were subhuman, ineducable, and cursed by God to be a servant race. Almost everyone in my church believed that Martin Luther King Jr. was a card-carrying communist, and we cheered every time a southern sheriff hit him with a nightstick or locked him in a jail. He says, they talked about grace, but my church lived by law. They spoke of love, but they showed signs of hate. Unfortunately, when I emerged from Southern fundamentalism, I cast off not just the shell of hypocrisy, but also my body of belief. He actually has a happy ending to his story. We'll talk about it as we wrap up here in a bit. He goes on to discover for himself, as some of you have done, what church can and should be. Uh, But before we get to that, folks, uh, what Yancey describes here, and these are my own words, is what I call the rigid church. That's our first story, the rigid church. You see, this is a church that's known more for its legalism and its separatism than anything else. Uh, This is the type of church, and I think you picked up on it, And some of you have even experienced this that puts rigid and unbending structures around one's faith and demands strict obedience to these structures as a sign of salvific spirituality it's very similar to the pharisees of jesus's day and what they did with the old testament law these rigid churches add more rules to a book that already has a lot of rules the bible and they make these rules kind of the barometer of our spirituality and you're saying like what Well, don't dance, don't drink, don't dress in a certain way, don't listen to certain types of music, don't read certain types of books. Do believe only certain forms of narrowly confined theologies and avoid all others. Do vote in a certain way and certainly don't vote that way. Don't attend worldly schools and do associate mainly with the already convinced It's the rigid church. And what you need to know is that it's alive and well today. It's a church that substitutes rules for relationship when it comes to what our faith is primarily about. And before we go any further, I need you guys to understand something because I don't want you to hear me wrong. I am not suggesting today that there is not a time for wise separation from sinful activities in this world and certainly I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't have a healthy objective value system for our lives in which we make choices from I'm not saying that what I'm saying is is that those things now watch this the Bible says is an out Pouring of our faith. It's an outpouring of our relationship with Jesus. It's an outpouring of the things that matter most. They are not the core. They are not the things that you define a church by, because if you do, you're going to have a rigid church. If you're having some trouble with this today, and I know some of you might, uh, you might want to consider that this is a Kind of church that is talked about very clearly in the Bible and not in positive light. When Paul the Apostle was writing to the church in Colossae, the Colossians, he says this in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. He says, Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, if you don't know anything about Old Testament history, this thing is almost like Greek to you because you have no idea what he's talking about here. So let's fill in some of the gaps and understand contextually what Paul is saying here because this is a very powerful passage here. He's actually covering the gamut of kind of an Old Testament sweep of all the things back then that new Christians who used to be Jews were now integrating into their faith. Now watch this. But they were integrating them into such a way that they became the core of their newfound faith, these Old Testament laws and rules, and they were even imposing them on others in the church in Colossae. And so notice that he mentions food and drink laws. This is almost surely tied to the Nazarite vows found in Numbers 6 and Leviticus chapter 10 in which individuals who wanted to demonstrate their holiness in Old Testament times would abstain from wine and they'd grow their hair long and they'd avoid certain unclean things. And then you'll notice that he mentions yearly feasts or festivals, monthly new moon celebrations, and weekly Sabbath observances. He's covering all of it here. These are all things mentioned in the Old Testament. You can look them up yourselves as holy days where Israel would avoid certain things in a very rigid way as a sign of their holiness and separateness from the world around them. And here's what's important to understand because this is really kind of tricky if you're not paying close attention. And that is that Paul is not saying here, he doesn't say it anywhere here that these things are wrong. Give me a head nod that you understand that. You can read it again later. He is not saying, that these things are necessarily wrong. They're found in the Bible for crying out loud. No, what he's saying here is that these things should not be used as barometers for our spirituality, especially that now that Christ has shown up on the scene and our devotion to him and our relationship with him, as he says, our substance is now found in our faith in him. And so let's get down to brass tacks. What he's saying here is that whether you keep these things or not, that's up to you. If you wanna do them as a Jewish believer, do them. If you don't wanna do them, then don't do them. Just don't make these things the heart of your faith or anyone else's because there's something much much better and more substantive to being a Christian, the heart of it all, and that's your faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what he's saying here. And some of you are going, well, that's a great theology lesson, but does that really happen today, and what's the answer to that? Yeah. It's really rich when he says here, you know, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink. I was laughing at that this week in my study, because I thought, I wonder if Christians ever judge other Christians. <laughs> yeah, I know, I laughed too. I was like, oh my gosh, nothing has changed in 2,000 years. Back then, he had to say, hey guys, stop judging each other in some of these sideshow behavioral things that you've made the core of your faith to your own detriment. Stop judging each other in light of that because that's not for everyone. Some of you will do those things as expression of your faith and others of you won't. And I would simply submit to you guys that that mindset, that idea is very alive and well today. That there are hundreds, if not thousands, of rigid churches today functioning just like they did in Colossae back then in which rules have become more important than relationship, structures more important than grace, and lifestyle more important than love. And the results of all of this are devastating to say the least. This legalism and separatism, Clouds and even eclipses, the primary cry of the church, namely that God is a God of grace who has reached out to us in the Lord Jesus Christ and we all need to come to faith and trust in him. Making rules, even rules that come from the Bible, that test for spirituality versus faith, hope, and love, the things the Bible talks about at core. If you do that, it will deaden and numb your own soul And it will cause you to be joyless and lifeless. And I know so many Christians like this, even churches like this, and and you'll have very little useful ministry to others. And once again, don't get me wrong. If you walk out of here today and you text one of your friends and say, hey, good passage, but you know, Pastor Jamie said that morality and values don't count. You will have heard wrong what I said. Are any of you hearing me say that today? I hope not. I believe that holiness and morality, obedience and values matter and are critical for one's faith and walk with God. And just to be clear, I'm talking about things like sexual purity, avoiding drunkenness, not being a chronic liar, even carving out times of rest, what we call Sabbath. I think all of these things are critical. Now watch this, I said it earlier, but let's understand it. They flow out of our faith. They are things that come after you have established a relationship with Jesus Christ and you're tied closely to him in love, faith, and hope each moment of each day and you're grounded in him. And now as a result of that, of being a part of his family, some of the fruit are going to be these things. <laughs> and that's the way it should work. It's just here's what legalism does. It puts the fruit first. And it makes your fruit Because you might have a special manifestation of fruit, things that you feel free to do and things that you don't feel free to do and you have a wonderful faith in Jesus, but then it takes that and you impose it on all the others around you. And the second that you do that, you have become rigid in your faith and your church might even become rigid. It's a sad tale for the church in the 21st century. And I gotta tell you, I, I believe Scottsdale Bible has had a fairly good That would be my best way of saying it. Fairly good track record over five decades of doing a good job to avoid drifting into a rigid church. We're a conservative Bible-believing church. I'm proud of that, by the way. That's why I smile when I say that. And yet, the danger of a conservative Bible-believing church is that it'd be very easy to get rigid. It'd be very easy to allow our, 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 our values and our mores to be that which we lead with rather than leading with our faith and love and hope in Jesus and then allowing our expressions of our faith to naturally outpour from them. And that's the challenge before us. I want our church to be a healing place for those who have been hurt and abused by the rigid church. I want us always to take care to not allow our personal expressions of faith in Jesus to be imposed unthinkingly on those around us. I work hard to do this every moment of every day when I interact with you guys. And I make a distinction between the way that I relate to Jesus and how you might relate to Jesus. Because I've seen too much damage done when we don't approach it that way. Now. Before we get to the kind of church that we envision SBC continuing to become, there's a second story that I want to tell you about another church option available today, and I'm just going to warn you, the pendulum's going to swing right now. Like, you know, this is the southern fundamentalism of the past that some of you grew up in, like Yancey, you know, that I still think we need to be careful of. Now we're going to swing to the other end of it here, because the story I'm going to tell you is my experience of church growing up kind of like Yancey had his own I had my own and it's a story of a very different kind of church you know ever since I can remember even though I didn't grow up going to church very much I I had a thirst for God and spiritual things you know when you see your neighbor doing his or her thing and they're really decadent they don't seem to have any spiritual interest don't let them fool you I didn't look like I had any spiritual interest growing up because I didn't know how to communicate it but I did I, I can remember one day when I was a little boy, My, uh, <laughs> this is kind of sad, but I smile saying it because it's, it's just so stupid and goofy, but I, I came home one day from dinner, we were out eating dinner as a family, which we only did once a month, remember those days, once a month, we'd go out to dinner, and, and we came back, and uh, the dog had gotten out of the cage and had gotten into the guinea pig cage and wags ate my sister's guinea pig. And I, I mean, it was a terrible night because this was back in the days of corporal punishment for animals, sorry Steve, but my dad went down to the basement with wags and I can just hear them having a discussion and it was not a nice discussion. And and, and my sister is, is is just distraught on the couch, you know, her guinea pig's a mess, dead. And uh, you know, it was, so mom rushed us to bed and I can just remember laying there in bed, hearing the dog and my dad having a discussion and hearing, you know, my sister crying. And, 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 and I was, what, probably six years old, and I just remember praying to God. And I just said, oh, God, I pray that my sister might see her guinea pig in heaven someday. And I said, and please protect wags from my dad. <laughs> it, it was the prayer of a six-year-old who had never really been to church, never really read the Bible But I always had a spiritual thirst. When I was in seventh grade, I started attending a uh, church in my hometown. It was the the biggest, most beautiful church in town. I went there because I had a crush on a seventh grade girl, and that's where she went. I went for all the wrong reasons. But I, I went out to this nice sanctuary with a big pulpit and comfortable pews and stately hymnals and a big fellowship hall. And I got to tell you, as I went to Sunday school for a few weeks and even attended big church for a few weeks in seventh grade, without knowing anything about the Bible, I could tell something wasn't right with this church. For instance, in Sunday school class, there was never any Bible stories that were told. We never prayed and there was no talk of accepting Christ. I couldn't have told you any of those things back then, but we never did any of that. The Sunday school was only about civic and cultural issues. In fact, one day they brought in a, 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 a hearing impaired person and the whole Sunday school was helping us learn about hearing impaired people. And I thought that was interesting, but it was kind of like school on steroids, you know. And I, and I thought, I know now why they call it Sunday school, because that's what it seems to be. And then when I'd visit the big church, uh, again, the sermons were really boring, but they weren't even biblically boring. I mean, it, there was just hardly any of the Bible mentioned And then I went to the youth group and the youth group was really fun and we went camping and backpacking and took trips and yet I was never taught anything spiritual in this youth group. In short, as someone who was not raised in the church but just starting to seek, I never found God, now watch this, in this Christian church Because it's clearly a Christian church, at least they say that they are. I was never offered a saving relationship with him and eventually after a few months I left this church in seventh grade and just went back to my secular thing. And it wouldn't be for five years later uh, till I met a man who introduced me to the gospel of Jesus Christ and I'd reignite my spirituality once again. You see, I have a very nice way of calling this church what it is. And so please feel my gentleness here. I call this the confused church, the confused church. So you got the rigid church and the confused church. And this is a church, and some of you are shocked they even exist, but this is a church that has forgotten its theological roots, it's gotten confused about what the Bible clearly says about who God is and what He is about. It's a church void of substantive and biblical truths, and hence, I would argue, void of really helping people find God, especially confused seventh graders. And though this will surprise some of you, there are thousands. Tens of thousands, maybe even over 100,000, I haven't done the math lately, of churches like this across our country, and even many of them in the Valley of the Sun. And like the church in Colossae that we just looked at, the rigid church, what you need to know is that this church was actually prophesied about in the Bible that it would happen. Look at what Paul says in his very last letter that he wrote, 2 Timothy, writing to his protege, Timothy, he says this, he says, for a time will come. When they, church people, will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, Timothy, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry." Notice two key things going on in this passage here that are really quite mind-blowing. The first is that he says that a time will come when churches will not endure sound doctrine, but they want to have their ears tickled. What does he mean by sound doctrine? Here's what I would suggest. This is very different from the rigid church. By not enduring sound doctrine, I would submit to you that Paul is talking about things like the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The atonement of Christ on the cross. The truthfulness of the Bible as our infallible word to us. The trinity as our understanding of the eternal God give me a head now that those would be pretty important truths to any church that claims to follow Jesus. Those would be sound doctrine issues. And though we're going to talk about how this plays out today in just a second here, just notch it away right now that there are churches that abandon those things. Now you're asking why? Why would a church, I mean, it's a church, for crying out loud, ever abandon the core things that they believe? And that's the second thing you need to see from this passage, because you're going to get it now, and hopefully you'll understand forever. And that is that they want a church that accords with their own desires, and a church that will allow their ears to be tickled, saying it right here. Now, what's that about? Here's what I think is happening there. Being a Christian back in the first century and believing the things that they did were very countercultural. They were dealing with Greece and Rome. They were dealing with a very decadent uh, state back then and a very different religious culture. And they were also battling the Jews because many of the Jews did not agree that Jesus was the Messiah. So to be a Christian back then, man, it meant just going against the grain, and culture did not applaud your belief structure. And so there were some that felt immense pressure from the culture around them to change their theology just a bit, to make them more acceptable within Roman and Greek culture, and even with the fellow Jews And so there was a real strong temptation and lure to change their theology so they could feel better about the world around them. Now, let's put this together for you and I today. Here's my question to you. Is that same temptation alive for you and I today, yes or no? Yeah. And I would submit to you, and I never thought I'd say this. I never thought I'd be 54 years old, standing up on this stage and saying to you guys that it actually has gotten worse in my time and not better. See, I got saved, I've told you guys before, you know, back in the early 1980s. And, 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 you know, we tend to glorify the 80s now. I don't know why. Because the 80s, even though we had Reagan, the 80s were like Def Leppard and Kiss and ACDC and the Stones and massive counterculture and all of this. And that's the environment I got saved out of. And that wasn't friendly to spiritual things at all. And so now I hear people go, oh, I'm going to go see a Def Leppard concert. Really? Really? Like, you're going to put up with that crud? I got saved out of that crud. And and so my salvation, you know, 40 years ago was, was very, very radical from the world I came out of. And yet, I think it's harder for our kids today. I think there's pressure on you and I today to cave on certain core aspects of our theology all the time. I mean, think about the world you live in. We are told daily that God creating this world is a stupid person's myth. We are told that there's no way that the stories in the Bible about miracles and God's intervention could have happened. And we're especially told that the things that Jesus said about being Lord of all and demanding absolute devotion and faith, that's very narrow-minded. And Probably most pointedly today, we're told that certain values of the Bible that seem to be pretty clear either need to be reinterpreted to fit the culture today or are just downright antiquated. And believe it or not, there have been plenty of churches that in light of that have caved. I'm being kind when I call them the confused church, but it's very real and they're, and they're very much out there. Uh, to finish my story, uh, years ago, when I was pastoring back in Cleveland in my hometown, my, that church that I visited when I was in seventh grade, the big stately church in my hometown, uh, got a new pastor. And I thought, this might be good. You know, the guy might change the tide and help them be less confused and what have you. And so I took him out to lunch. And, and I think I'm a fairly likable guy, you know, so I was putting on all my charm and being nice and all this, and we're actually enjoying our lunch together. But at one point I said to him, I said, hey, do, do you mind if I just ask you a couple of questions about your own personal theology so I can understand maybe where you're coming from? And he said, shoot. And so I said, well, I thought my mind, let's start easy. And I said, well, do you believe that Jesus literally rose from the dead on the third day? Like that, that's not just sort of a nice little, you know, analogy or word picture, but he really rose from the dead. And he looked at me and he said, I think something special happened on Easter morning. I was like, wow, okay, we're not off to a good start, but let's keep going. And so I, and so I said, um, do, do you believe on, on Good Friday when Jesus died on a wooden cross for our sins that he was atoning for the sins of the whole world, taking our sin upon himself? And I'll never forget this as long as the day is long because he got very feisty with me. He leaned forward and he said, if you mean that Jesus died to appease the wrath of an angry God, of course not. I thought, I don't have any more questions for him right now. Some of you don't even, can't even imagine that there would be churches out there that are doing that, but they they are. There are churches that have caved in or gotten confused about the core aspects of our Christian faith. Why? Because they want to fit in with science and they want to fit in with modern philosophy. They want to fit in with ASU. Uh, They they want to fit in with the prevailing culture around them. And don't get me wrong, you guys know me. I don't want to like pick a fight with culture. I like to be liked by people. I like to be liked by you. But at the end of the day, and I think you and I can both own this, we serve an audience of one, Amen? amen? We do not serve our culture. We do not serve to try to have them like us or what have you. At the same time, we don't want to be combative. We want to be the church, And as we're seeing, the church is not rigid, the church is not confused. So let's wrap this thing up. What is the church? I want to share one final story with you today, and then we'll put a label on it. And the story I'm going to share with you right now comes right out of the Bible. It's the story of the very first Christian church. I would argue that if you and I want to understand what the church is, let's go back to the very first one, that God birthed, and let's learn from them. So here's the story. It's not long. It's rather short, found in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 47. And I'll fill in the context as we read it here. It says, so then, those who had received his word, does anybody know who he is here? Did you go to Sunday school? Peter. So Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. He's preaching his very first sermon. It's not expository, by the way. So let's just, you know, understand that. I mean, it's a, it's a topical sermon that he's giving there, but it incorporates the word of God. And so Peter is preaching there on the day of Pentecost. And it's such a powerful spirit-filled sermon that it says, and there were added that day, 3,000 souls. Now, our best guess is there was the low 100s at that time of Christians in Jerusalem. So they had maybe 130, 140 people that were Christians at that time, and they just ballooned up to over 3,000. So what did they do? It says, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching... And to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone had need." And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. I would submit to you that there's two things going on here that flow right out of the ministry of Jesus do you remember what it says about Jesus when he showed up on the scene? Give me the John 1.14 quote here. It says of Jesus when he showed up on the scene that we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of, say this with me, grace and truth. Give me the chart here now from Acts chapter 2. I think when you look closely at the story of the first century church, church what you see is truth and grace riding tandem with each other. If there's any one-two punch that the first century church had that allowed them to not be rigid or confused is that they married truth and grace together, the truth and grace they got from Jesus, and they incorporated that into the life of their church and so truth, they submitted to the apostles' teaching. They broke bread, which means communion. They had communion and the Lord's supper together. They prayed like Jesus was gonna come back tomorrow. And then it says they shared with sincere hearts. I've taught you this before, but that word sincere in the Greek literally means an unfolded heart. So they shared truth in love with each other. And so there's truth going on all the time in this church. They were rock solid, on who Jesus was, the Holy Spirit was, the nature of his word that was coming into formation at that time, and they, they overdosed on truth. But then they mixed it in greatly with grace. That word fellowship is the Greek word koinonia. It means high relationality, closeness, loving one another. They were generous to each other, giving as anyone had need, and as a result of that, people around them looked at this community and said, whoa, we got nothing like this in the Greco-Roman world. <laughs> We got nothing like this, even in the temple. We need what you have. In other words, grace and truth. And I call this the transformation church. The transformation church. It's not rigid. It's not confused. It's just that God tends to transform our lives if we dare to cling to his truth and and, and bathe it in grace. And even though that can get messy and sticky, marry those two things together and see where God leads. I want to close today because we're going to our elder fund here in a minute. And uh, and before we get to that, I want to close by uh, wrapping up Yancey's story. Because the last I left you, when we started our time together, Yancey was quitting church, right? Were y'all awake at that time? And so uh, let's figure out what happened to him. Yancey eventually ended up in Chicago as a writer, and uh, he attended a church there, an inner city church called LaSalle Street Church. And he attended this church because they were doing a really good job of marrying grace with truth. And he writes a lot in this book of what happened at LaSalle Street Church. But one story in particular that he shares moves me every time I read it. It's a story of an individual that came to that church that responded to grace mixed with truth in a way that would become indicative of what the church needs to be about. Let me read it for you. He says, I learned an enduring lesson about what grace looks like in action from my church's response to Adolphus, a young black man with a wild, angry look in his eye. Every inner city church has at least one Adolphus. He had spent some time in Vietnam. Most likely his troubles started there. He could never hold down a job for very long. His fits of rage and craziness sometimes landed him in an asylum. He says if Adolphus took his medication on Sunday, he was manageable. Otherwise, well, church could be even more exciting than usual. He might start at the back and high hurdle his way over the pews down to the altar. He might raise his hands in the air during a hymn and make obscene gestures. Or he might wear headphones and turn into rap music during the sermon. As a part of our worship, LaSalle had a time called Prayers of the People. We would all stand and spontaneously various people would call out a prayer for peace in the world, for healing for the sick, for justice in the community around us. And we would all respond in unison with, Lord, hear our prayer. Adolphus soon figured out that the prayers of the people provided an ideal platform for him to air his concerns. Lord, Thank you for creating Whitney Houston and her magnificent body, he prayed one morning. After a puzzled pause, a few chimed in weakly, Lord, hear our prayer. (laughs) He says regular attenders came to expect the unexpected from Adolphus's prayers. Adolphus called down judgment on all the white people in the church. He even called down judgment against President George Bush, who sent troops against Iraq while people were being killed in the streets of Chicago. Adolphus has already been kicked out of three other churches. He preferred attending an integrated church because he enjoyed making white people squirm. He says a group of people in the church, including a doctor and psychiatrist, took on Adolphus as a special project. Every time he had an outburst, they pulled him aside and talked it through, using the word inappropriate a lot. Adolphus, your anger may be justified, but there are appropriate and inappropriate ways of expressing it. Praying for the pastor's house to burn down is inappropriate. (laughs) Yancey says, we learned that Adolphus sometimes walked the five miles to church on Sunday because he could not afford bus fare. Members of the congregation began to offer him rides. Some invited him over for meals. Most Christmases he spent with our assistant pastor's family. He says, the day came when Adolphus asked to join the church. The elders quizzed him on his beliefs and found little by way of encouragement and decided to put him on kind of probation. He could join when he demonstrated that he understood what it meant to be a Christian, they decided, and when he learned to act appropriately around others in church. Yancey he he says, against all odds, Adolphus' story has a happy ending. He calmed down. He started calling people in the church when he felt the craziness coming on. He even got married, And on the third try, Adolphus was finally accepted into church membership. And then Yancey says this, and this is what moves me. He says, grace comes to people who do not deserve it. And for me, Adolphus came to represent grace. In his entire life, no one had ever invested that kind of energy and concern in him. He had no family, no job. He had no stability. Church became for him the one stable place. It accepted him, despite all he had done to earn rejection. The church did not give up on Adolphus. It gave him a second chance, a third, and a fourth. Christians who had experienced God's grace transferred it to Adolphus. And that stubborn, unquenchable grace gave me an indelible picture of what God puts up with choosing to love the likes of me. I now look for churches that exude this kind of grace. You know, I thought about Scottsdale Bible Church this week as I was preparing for our time together, and I thought, you know, we're not an inner city church. We're not LaSalle Street Church. But we do have those in our community, certainly those in our city. They're like Adolphus. I want you to listen close. I think at the end of the day, most of us are like Adolphus. I think at the end of the day, no matter how much money you have, no matter how successful you are, no matter how much you read your own press releases when you wake up every morning, at the end of the day, someday you're gonna realize how lonely, sinful, and in need, especially in light of God, you really are. That's actually where the Bible wants all of us to get, to to realize our utter need that without him and eventually without each other, we just aren't gonna make it, at least spiritually and relationally. You know, when I drive to church here every Sunday, I drive by a couple of Starbucks and country clubs and other places, and I see everybody sitting out there reading their paper, you know, swinging a golf club, and I think to myself, I'm not judging them, but I think to myself, they're probably not going to church today, you know, because we know that only about 13 to 17 percent of Scottsdale darkens a church on any given weekend. And yet, don't ever let that fool you. Like me, when I was... Six years old or in seventh grade growing up in an upper middle class town. I can tell you right now, these people, because they're made in the image of God, are spiritually thirsty. They pine for God. They want to know him. They won't tell you that until you get to really know them. But when they go to bed and their head hits that pillow at the end of the day and they're thinking about their 401K and their investments and the next round of golf and all the things that their lives surround around, there's a part of them that also goes, is this it? Is this it? There has to be more. And here's the point. You you and I know the answer to that, don't we? There is more. And it all centers around Jesus. But my simple point is this. They don't want to come to a rigid church. (laughs) If we become rigid, they're going to run. The two R's, rigid and run. That's what they will do. And they don't need a confused church, do they? They might come to a confused church because, again, it might fit their lifestyle better. But at the end of the day, it's not really going to help them. It's not going to lead them to the one who can save their very soul. They need a transformational church. They need a church that understands the delicate balance, even the congruity between grace and truth, and how those things came to us in Jesus, and we can embody them together as a church. Many of you have experienced life change in your life. Don't ever forget the call of our church, as Daryl said so well, our pastor emeritus, is not to be a country club, but a hospital. In fact, when we moved Phoenix Seminary two blocks away, Daryl now calls Phoenix Seminary a teaching hospital because it's attached to the church. And so we're teaching people how to be hospital, hospital residents of the soul. And that's why our church exists. I pray regularly for you. I love you guys. I enjoy being your pastor. Let's never forget that our job is to avoid being rigid. Let's not get confused. Let's stay focused on his word and let's stay focused on the things that matter the most. Faith, hope, and love, all centered around Jesus. And let's allow the spirit to transform us. Would you bow with me and pray? God, yeah, thank you. Father, I thank you for your church. I'm just in love with the expression of the body of Christ that has so many across our nation. And God, I hope I wasn't too hard on the church today. I I don't want to be judgmental of other churches at all. That's your job, not mine. But Lord, we also need to recognize the pitfalls. And God, I know the hearts of many of us here at Scottsdale Bible and at the Cactus Campus and the venue and chapel. We don't want to be a rigid church. We don't want to be a confused church. We want to be transformed by you. And so God, I pray that as we continue to focus on your grace that's come to us in Jesus, your truth that he embodied, that God, you would continue to have your way with us. Use us to see lives changed for all of eternity. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.